Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we'll discuss the latest from the administration on climate policy and on supply chain policy. Doug, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. How you doing? Uh, another fine day here in D.C. I mean, the sun's out. Hard to complain about that. Let's jump right into things today. There's been some big news on a variety of fronts since the last time we spoke. But let's focus on the two areas from the administration. First, climate policy, and then on this supply chain policy that they've been talking about. So let's talk about the Paris Agreement on climate change. The Obama administration agreed to this. The Trump administration left it. And now the Biden administration got us back in. Can you start by walking us through what this agreement is? So the the Paris Agreement uh, is a voluntary agreement among nations where each nation has a uh, nationally determined contribution, NDC, uh, which is how much you're going to reduce your emission of greenhouse gases. And you pledge to to do that uh, uh, with the other co-signers of the Paris Agreement. Now, the important thing is that there is no enforcement mechanism in the Paris Agreement. So you make a pledge, but if you fail to meet it, nothing happens. So the critics of the agreement, I would be on this list, really think it's it's far too weak for anything that's actually going to get a global problem like climate change uh, uh, under control. Advocates say, look, you got to start somewhere. And in the end, this is about diplomacy and international relations, and it all often has this sort of a, a dance at the beginning. So that, that's where we are. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like they made this commitment, and that's the easy part. What happens now? Uh, do we have a sense of how the administration intends to accomplish these goals? Yes, we do. Uh, so the the um, Biden administration pledged that the U.S. would reduce its emissions by 50 percent or as much as 52 percent below 2005 levels, historic levels, uh, by 2050. So that's the nature of the commitment. Uh, that's a much stronger commitment than the Obama administration had made. Uh, and in outlining this commitment, they they committed the U.S. to a sectoral strategy. So uh, you look at sectors of the economy. Uh, our biggest sector for emitting greenhouse gases is transportation, uh, light vehicles, cars, uh, trucks, and, and uh, airplanes being the top three there. Um, second would be the electricity sector. So you go out and uh, sort of think about generation and transmission of, of electricity and try to take care of that one and, and see what you can do. And then the third is methane. Uh, and methane's a particularly um, a potent greenhouse gas and uh, methane leaks from oil and gas production, uh, uh, notably. And so those are three sectors that the um, administration's chosen to, to focus on. And um, uh, we at AAF have, have taken a look at all three. And so we've and I yesterday was involved in a, a hearing up on Capitol Hill on, on this topic. And so I, I would say roughly characterize uh, in all three cases, the, the situation is the following. I mean, we have the, the most information on the electricity sector. So let's, let's use that one first. In electricity, you could pass legislation uh, through the House and the Senate that um, set up the, the kinds of uh, frameworks to reduce emissions in the electricity sector. Their commitment in electricity is very strong. It is we will have a zero net emissions, um, all renewables, uh, national electricity grid by 2035. So that's 14 years away. Wow. So how do you get there? Well, pass legislation, 
There's something known as the Clean Future Act uh, in the House Energy and Commerce Committee. It's a, a Democrat uh, proposal to, to do that. So imagine that's the, that's the way we get this done. Uh, Evelina Chapla took a real close look at this in a recent uh, paper and, and basically came to the conclusion that um, you probably can't do this, but it's just too fast and it requires too much. And we've never had a national transmission grid. But if you really wanted to get to, to that, uh, you'd have to spend about two trillion dollars uh, in capital costs and operation costs um, in just the generating alone. So we, that doesn't take into account setting up these high, you know, high voltage transmission lines all across the, the country. And in the process, that money has to come from somewhere. And so electricity rates would have to go up by about 90 bucks a month on average. Um, for a perspective, depending on what state you live in, your electricity costs anywhere from 75 bucks a month to 160, 170 bucks a month. So you're talking about doubling the, the, the utility bills or, or raising by more than 50%, that kind of a range. That's a pretty serious cost. And, and so, you know, the idea is well, there are benefits, climate benefits, but, but we're trying to get a good handle on exactly what it would cost. So that's a that's a, a sort of minimum cost because we're leaving some of the things out. And my concern is that if you repeat that in other areas, so you go to the transportation section and say, OK, we're going to have uh, cafe standards, uh, you know, fuel efficiency requirements on on cars that are so steep that in, inevitably the only way to get there is to go to all electric vehicles. Um, you know, right now, 5% of cars are, are electric vehicles to get to a, a substantial uh, fleet by in, in the next 14 years. It, it's just hard to imagine, right? But that's what it would take. And, and then, you know, the methane is the same thing. It's just extremely costly to go find old wells and cap them, impose uh, capture requirements on, on new ones. And, and so the, the, the sort of basic situation we find ourselves in is one where you could have a whole lot of upfront costs. You might not get to the U.S. goals or worse, you, you might be the only one who does anything and thus you'll have essentially no impact on global emissions at a tremendous U.S. cost. That's the issue. This might be an obvious answer to this question, but what's the appetite for something like that in Congress? Well, I, I don't think we know yet because they haven't really, I think, in, I think, gotten serious about that discussion. They they are very much interested in the goal and the and the cause, which is uh, reducing emissions and uh, stabilizing concentrations in the atmosphere. That's understandable. Um, they are very interested in some of the benefits that come along with that. So if you re reduce um, emissions of of uh, tailpipe emissions in cars, for example, you also reduce particulates in the air and, and their health benefits to come from that. There, there are all sorts of good news out there about this. They would love to have uh, all the uh, good paying jobs that they advertise would come with this, erecting solar panels and building windmills. Um, but they haven't come to the fact that in the end, there are trade-offs. And for every job that they're, they're quote, creating, other jobs are going to go away. The ones that are in coal-fired uh, generation, the ones that are in natural gas-fired generation, people working in, in uh, the, the pipeline sectors for oil and natural gas, all those things, you know, this is a this is a shift, not just uh, going up. And, and uh, you know, once that conversation starts and, and the real trade-offs emerge, I think it's, it's a harder sell. That's all there is to it. 
mm -hmm. shifting around in the industry, that takes time and money as well, right? No question. So uh, the pace at which you do this really matters. So uh, in the in the short presentation I prepared for this meeting up on, on Capitol Hill, I um, reminded people of the experience of the U.S. in the 70s, very reliant on oil, a carbon intensive uh, fuel um, portfolio, and um, the, the climate change proposition that, that we're being presented with is get rid of those kinds of fuels in favor of solar, wind, geothermal, hydro, the, the sort of cleaner fuel portfolio. Well, in the 70s, we got rid of the, the, the very uh, carbon intensive oil overnight. We had an embargo in 1973 where, the, where OPEC stopped sending oil to the United States. Uh, in, in 78, 79, we had a, a repeat that was also a fallout from the Iran-Iraq war. And in both cases, suddenly the ability to use oil went away and went away quickly. And there were dramatic impacts. Uh, we saw huge spikes in, in oil prices, which got translated into huge spikes in general inflation because there was an inability to substitute quickly to other fuels. You had to shut some things down because you didn't have the fuel to run them or it was too expensive. And so we had uh, spikes in unemployment, we had recessions. Um, this was a very bad news story for the, the rest of the economy. That's what happens if you do it literally overnight. Now, that's not what they're proposing, but it tells you pace, the pace at which you do this matters. And, mm -hmm. and you want you know, activity, employment, investment in, in carbon fuels to go down and all the things dependent on carbon fuels to switch over to these other fuels and have them go up. And getting them synchronized is, a, is, is, a, is not automatic. And, and that's the issue. Mm -hmm. In thinking about the right balance here, I mean, I know we've talked about this on the podcast before, whereas the cost of the economy from the regulatory side of things, if they would do this through regulations um, compared to the cost of, say, like a carbon tax, for example. What are your thoughts on sort of the balance there? Oh, well, just to complete uh, something I should have mentioned earlier, you know, Evelyn took a look at the, the legislative route. We've also had a, a stab at the the uh, regulatory route. Dan Goldbeck took a look at that. And you can't get there either. For, in 14 years, given the litigation, the time it takes to do rulemaking, implementation, you know, you're, you're not even close. So so the among the things that um, I worry about is that if you want to be successful in, in reducing global emissions, the U.S. has to have a substantial leadership role. If you do it this way, where you overpromise and fail, is that a good idea? I mean, is that really the way you want to, to sort of provide the leadership and, and get the U.S. Uh, population as a whole on board? I, I have my doubts about that. That doesn't seem like a great idea to me. So the alternative would be something like a carbon tax. Carbon tax, um, uh, there's a, a lot of research on how you do this. And, and the way you do it is you impose the, the carbon tax and then you make it revenue neutral by getting rid of other taxes. So candidates would be like the payroll tax, corporation income tax. In the process, you don't just raise the cost uh, of things. You, you sort of keep it roughly neutral on, on tax costs. But you have an incentive to shift away from the use of carbon intensive fuels and, and purchase of carbon intensive goods and services because those will have higher prices because the carbon tax will get embedded in them. Notice you get to shift at the pace that you can accommodate. And so you're not dictating the pace, which is what happens in, in these uh, these regulatory approaches. People move at the pace they can. And that's going to differ across the, the economy. And, and, that, and so you allow for that. You also give them an incentive to innovate, to economize. 
right? So instead of saying you have to get 48 miles per gallon, people have an incentive to get 48 miles per gallon. And if they can get 55, they do it, right? That's all, all to their advantage. So you get those kinds of innovation incentives. You also get incentives to innovate, to get away entirely from uh, carbon uh, uh, ingredients in products. And so there, there are a lot better innovation incentives and a lot better economic grounding in something that uses the price system, uses the thing that drives economic decisions instead of overriding it with, with a, a big regulation. The other news that has sort of been in this climate policy has been the NATO conference, where it seemed like these countries were coming together to say, we're going to take a look at it as it relates to national security. Obviously, taking a look at how that is in the industry will play into all of this, reaching those uh, net emissions. Well, there are uh, national security implications. Uh, I think people forget, uh, for example, the location of all our military installations. They're basically on the coasts, and with sea level rise, the Pentagon's painfully aware of all of these issues. And, and there's the extreme weather and the, the sort of problems that that produces, uh, droughts and, and other things that are uh, potent uh, sources of uh, unrest and perhaps uh, terrorism. So, you know, the Pentagon's been uh, studying this issue for decades very carefully. Uh, however, if you get, to, if you want to sit down at, the, say, the G7 and say, what should we do with coal? They couldn't come to an agreement. They all they all agree climate's important. They all agree that something has to be done. But when the, the devil is always in the details and they walked away without an agreement. And, you know, national security implications. Yes, they are. Should we take them into consideration? Yes, we should. Should we invest money to make sure that nothing bad happens? Yes, we should. How much and whose? Hey, I got to go. You know, it's uh, it's that kind of conversation right now. Gotcha. Let's turn to the other topic for today. Another initiative from the Biden administration. Uh, you wrote a pretty fiery dish last week, so I wanted to to uh, really talk about it since since it really seemed like it got you worked up a bit. And that's on the administration's supply chain policy. Would you just start by defining what the supply chain policy is? Uh, and I know that's a little bit of a leading question because I remember your introduction from last week. But what's their intent with this policy? There is no polite way for me to answer that question. So here, let me try. Um, so the, 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 there is the, the idea, first of all, what is the supply chain, right? You make a good or a service, and a supply chain is nothing but a bunch of contracts to acquire the necessary inputs to produce that good and service and sell it to your customers. And um, if you think about it, that means you, you, a private entity, are making these private contracts with other private entities to acquire stuff and, and, and prices that you negotiate. And... The government really doesn't have a natural role there. That's and and that's why the dish got so fiery. What is? Why are they pretending that they are managing the entire economy from the West Wing of the White House? That doesn't make any sense. That's not how the U.S. economy works. And so you can have a tax policy, and it could affect the supply chain. We have trade policies, and we know that has affected the the supply chain. You can have uh, safety uh, and health regulations, and that would affect your suppliers and you and all that. But there isn't a policy that makes any sense with respect to supply chains in general. Nevertheless, they launched into this 100-day review of supply chains and then issued a bunch of policy uh, recommendations. And 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 it was the the fact that I felt they were in an area they didn't belong, right? That's philosophically, this is not the government's role. And the things they were saying didn't make a lot of sense to me. So, you know, first sentence of this executive order says, we want to create good-paying union jobs. You know, what does unionization have to do with uh, uh, dealing with short-term disruptions in the supply chain, which is ostensibly the goal of this? this uh, nothing. So they're using this as a vehicle for other things, right? So they're going to set up 
public-private uh, consortiums to produce uh, um, medicines. Well, that, that's not supply chain. That's that's nationalizing part of essential medicines. And if you want to do that, say we like to nationalize essential medicines, be honest about it, move on. And you know they want to use the export import bank, export import bank, to finance domestic infrastructure. Okay. Now tell me what that has to do with short-term disruptions in private entity supply chains. Nothing. And, and and it goes on. Right. It's it's a series of things, including a trade. You know. Uh, what they call it, a, 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 a strike force to to find uh, those situations where government subsidies in other countries have, have disrupted supply chains. At the same time, they're supposing that they're proposing, by the way, to do government subsidies to create um, infrastructure. So it's rich in irony, and it makes no sense. And so I I I, I question the whole enterprise because it looks like the, the classic Rama manual of using an emergency as an opportunity to get something done. And and. I'm not sure I agree with all the things they want to do, and I certainly don't like the way it was presented. Yeah, yeah. So, you, I mean, you have a lot of objections. You noted a lot of them there. <laughs> I do want to talk about some of the specific proposals. You've mentioned some of them already in that policy fact sheet. The first one, I think you've already mentioned it, was using the Defense Production Act to form you know, those public-private consortiums to produce medicines. Could you just walk us through a little bit more of what that entails and what that would mean? Um, it, it would mean that Using the, the the sort of power of the government, you would take over the markets for uh, particular medicines. So you know, let's let's say that um, uh, COVID nineteen vaccines are called an essential medicine, right? Once you once you're declared to be an essential medicine, you are the the exclusive uh, product of a public private partnership yet to be set up and and fund where the government would be that would then be dictating. The amount that is made, who it's sold to, what the dosages are, all those things that, that are currently done in the private sector. And, and that would be for an array of uh, medicines. Uh, the, the, the idea to which there is some grain of truth is that, OK, um, there are things which we really want to be able to get our hands on in an emergency. So for our, our national health security, we have to be able to get adequate supplies of these things. Usually that means... Well, make sure that if you're importing the the inputs or even the final good, do it from friendly countries so you don't get into trouble. So, you know, make sure Canada or someone is, is, is your trading partner. It doesn't mean you have to take it over by the government and do it exclusively in the U.S. So it's an extreme version of dealing with that kind of a problem. What about the section tapping uh, the Energy Department's loan authority to invest in the production of advanced battery cells? What do you make of that? Uh, again, what supply chain is that? You know, and we've seen we, we we've seen the loan authority of the Department of Energy used for batteries before. That was the whole Solyndra scandal in the Obama administration. You know, I, I don't think we need to go down that route again. And I want points for keeping Solyndra out of the original post uh, because it's too cheap a shot. Um, but you know, th this presumes that somehow their climate policies, which which are going to drive people to electric vehicles, aren't a, uh, enough of a signal to the private sector. There's going to be a lot of money to be made in, in, in these batteries. I think that everyone has figured that out and that they have to somehow do more and do it at the, on the taxpayer's dime. That doesn't make any sense to me. Hmm. What about this section? And it's the strike force section, but I want to read exactly what the fact sheet says um, to give it more context. Establishing a trade strike force that will propose enforcement actions against what the administration says are unfair foreign trade practices, such as a government subsidies that have eroded critical supply chains. Walk us through the criticism and so, here. So this is uh, uh, trade protectionism in the guise of 
supply chain policy. Um, so under what circumstances do we deploy such protections? Well, it has to be a critical supply chain. So you have to have a definition of critical supply chains. Um, okay. And then you have to have um, the identification of an inappropriate government subsidy, which would trigger the protection in this critical supply chain. Well, you know, this is the very same document that's proposing using the loan authority of the Department of Energy to subsidize batteries and, uh, and subsidizing essential medicines with the taxpayer and a variety of other subsidies. So, you know, those are appropriate. So what's inappropriate? Where is the line? This doesn't hang together in any way. It just sounds like uh, sort of we want to have an extra authority to go out and intervene in international trade for purposes not really very clearly defined. Interesting. Is there like an example that they already are pointing to of what they're trying to solve or is this? Uh, uh, all roads lead to China in these criticisms. So, you know, uh, how, how much of uh, essential ingredients for pharmaceuticals come from China? A fair amount. They want to get that out. Look at the, uh, the sort of critical stuff in, in the race to 5G. We don't want any Chinese components. They want the chips out of uh, the, the there. So it's all it's all related to, to China in the end. Gotcha. Um, and then finally, the one last section that you mentioned was um, the export-import bank stuff. Again, quoting from their fact sheet, proposing a financing program under the U.S. Export-Import Bank for U.S. manufacturing facilities and infrastructure projects. Your thoughts here? The charter for the Exim Bank is to uh, provide loans, loan guarantees, and other financing so that U.S. products can be sold to overseas customers um, where there's some sort of uh, risk that the private sector seems unwilling to bear. And, and that's what it's there for, is to facilitate inter international transactions. If you want to have a domestic infrastructure um, uh, bank, uh, create a domestic infrastructure bank. Now, so I don't think they'll get to the Congress, so they're going to turn the XM bank into an infrastructure bank. But that's just the misuse of the XM bank. And, and then damages it in its original role. And, and, and that's just a, a not a good way to govern. What's been the reaction from the business community to this proposal? Well, I, I'm a little disappointed in some of the business community as well, because they, they, you know, government subsidies, you know, money on the table to, to help build uh, semiconductor fabrication facilities and things like that. It's very tempting. And so a lot of them have uh, said, gee, you know, thank you. This would be great. Really appreciate your help. But, but I would be nervous if I was them, because once you take that money and you, you take it under these authorities, you're, you're giving the government the right to tell you some things in return, where the plant is made, how it's staffed, and with what union workers it will uh, be paid, and who do you sell the chips to, and oh, by the way, um, you know, we'd like to have a backdoor in that chip for government agencies to make sure we can have access to it, regardless of the uh, privacy regime, and a whole bunch of other things that I can imagine aren't so palatable. And so, you know, is that really something you want to support? I'd be careful. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like more devils in the details type stuff again. But anyways, Doug, thanks for joining us to talk about these two important issues. And we'll continue to watch them and talk about them as, as they need to happen. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.